This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Jody Halpern, a leading expert on empathy. We will be talking about how we can connect more deeply with others through the art of empathy. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Jody. My pleasure. How do you define empathy? I define empathy as imagining how it feels to be inside another person's world when they're talking to you about a specific situation or something particular. And do people confuse sympathy with empathy? All the time. Um, Basically, both of them do have something very important in common, which is they both have a base in emotional resonance, in our ability to emotionally attune to the emotions of another person. But then empathy takes that emotional attunement. We're with a friend that's feeling really down, and we find ourselves embodied feeling sadness, takes that emotional attunement, but uses it in the service of trying to imagine more about what that other person who we realize is different from us is going through. So empathy has a cognitive or imaginative task of trying to understand what in particular that person's world is like from the inside out. Sympathy is not curious in that sense. It's not driven by curiosity to understand and learn more about another person's world. Sympathy takes that resonance as a confirmation that you and the other person just are in the same boat. And it's a very, it can be a very positive experience. I use the best example of sympathy that's not really heavy, what you feel when you're watching your sports team um, and people all on the same side in a sports match. They're all sort of sympathetically merging with each other. Is it difficult for people to step into someone else's shoes in feeling empathy? I think a simple way to understand the difference between sympathy and empathy is the phrase, we're in the same boat, to me, goes with sympathy. But trying to be in a different person's shoes, shoes you haven't worn, like you just said, being in a different person's shoes, that goes to me with empathy. But it sounds like it's more difficult to be empathetic than sympathetic. I think it does, that's a really great observation. It's, I think when you're feeling sympathy, to take the next step towards empathy is a skill to develop. I think you're right. The thing that I would say about, though, in general, when people say to me, is it difficult to feel empathy? I say, well, how do you relax at night, especially when we're all under so much stress? What do people do that when they want to be at ease or do something easy and relaxing? You know, for some people, maybe they work out or they drink a glass of wine or whatever. But the most common way that everyone relaxes is by immersing themselves in someone else's story. That's why Netflix and Amazon and everybody, all the TV shows that are so popular, movies, reading, books, narratives. And when we're immersing ourselves in another person's story, we are using empathic curiosity to try to imagine a life that's different from our own. So actually, empathy is really easy, empathic curiosity, which is what I'm interested in. The thing that's hard, of course, is doing it with real people in real time, especially if you're in a conflict with them or you're feeling anxious with them or you're worried that they're going to take something away from you economically or otherwise. So it's really the complexity, anxiety, fear, conflict can undermine that empathic imagination. 
And then it can be difficult also in the professions, and I can say a lot more about that because I've studied it mostly in, in medicine. It's difficult for professionals to have empathy, doctors to have adequate empathy for their patients, empathic curiosity. It's difficult because doctors make assumptions about patients. People make assumptions about their clients in different professions. And making assumptions is an empathy killer. It kills empathic curiosity. Interesting. Sounds like empathy is most easily attainable when it's through storytelling. Yes, exactly. But you can't get a patient to tell a doctor or a nurse's story if, and nurses usually do listen well, but when I started out writing about empathy in medicine decades ago, doctors were trained to cut patients off and try to figure out objective symptoms. And the last thing they did was let the patient narrate their story. And a lot of what we did in medicine was change that. In those situations where they have to step back and assess their patients, they're less likely to be empathetic? Yes, because they're trying so hard to get control over the situation, make a diagnosis, and act with that kind of decisive control. Again, when I started out in healthcare decades ago, that, that was thought that having a patient tell you what was on their mind would waste your time and get away from the objective symptoms. We've done research now over decades showing none of that is true, that you're more effective at making a diagnosis, at treating people effectively, and helping empower them to participate in treatment. All of that is much better with empathic curiosity. But the assumption was that that would get in the way, basically. And how do you create empathic curiosity? The way to create it is, first of all, to, for doctors, at least, it was to show them what they're missing when they're not trying to learn more about the patient's world. So the example I was thinking of to tell you, because it's a short one, I was called to see as a consultant for a college football player in a major medical center was hospitalized with severe Crohn's disease. And that's a bowel disease that can get very severe. And he had an obstruction of his bowel, which meant he would die if he didn't have emergency surgery within a few hours. It wasn't within minutes, but he needed it within five, six hours. And he was over 18, so he had the right to say no to treatment. And he refused the surgery. His parents were distraught. The whole medical team was distraught. And he said to the medical team, I don't want the surgery because he was going to be left with a permanent colostomy, which is a bag external to the body for feces. And he said, if I have that colostomy, I won't be able to be active. So they spent hours, the medical team spent hours telling him all the sports. He was a football player, and he couldn't do tackle football then, but they kept telling him about other sports he could play and trying to talk him into it. Whereas nobody said to him, what do you mean you won't be able to be active? What does that mean to you? And then one very empathic nurse did finally ask him that, and then he shared with her that he was actually very worried as a 19-year-old that he wouldn't be able to be sexually active, that people wouldn't want to be sexual with him intimate with him because of the colostomy. And she was able to talk to him about people with colostomies that she had cared for who had been very able to have romantic lives. And that made him calm himself and decide to have the life-saving surgery. That's such a powerful story. Do you think that people find it difficult to feel empathy or to have that empathetic curiosity? I think it's super easy and natural, like when we're relaxed and we're watching TV or reading a story. I think that when we feel like we have a job to do and they want to get the answers, that gets in the way of it. When parent of a teenager, the most 
we did research showing that the best predictor of a good relationship and good decision-making was an empathically curious parent. Well, that sounds great, right? But this is during a conflict. So you have your teenager wants to do something that you're scared about, that you feel like could endanger them, or even if it's just mild, you think isn't good for them. That's a hard time to have empathy because you're in a conflict with them and your anxiety goes up. So the challenge is cultivating empathic curiosity during a conflict or during an anxiety-provoking moment. That's what's challenging. And what do you do? This is something we've taught professionals and parents. Sounds really like common sense when I say it, but the first thing you do is you, you have to learn to be aware of your own reactivity. So you take your emotional temperature. You basically feel the anxiety in your body. And then things you can do that are very simple might be just walk away, take a break, that 10 minutes in an argument. If you walk away for 10 minutes, your amygdala calms calms down, your anxiety goes down. You can take deep breaths. But you basically have to give yourself, you have to break the circuit of anxiety and fear and let that stop. Walk the dog or whatever you can do. Then try to basically think about the person you're in the conflict with is if you're not responsible for them for a few minutes. You have to imagine what that teenager would be feeling and telling you if you were a friend of theirs and not their mom. Or what would that patient be? Why are they talking about this in a way? Let's say you're not the doctor that has to solve the problem in the next hour. So you have to just learn this imaginative moment of taking yourself off the hook of solving the problem. This is true in marriages. They've proved that there's couple communication is very different in different marriages. But a lot of the time, there's a kind of classic, stereotypical, heterosexual marriage where the woman wants the husband just to listen and the husband wants to solve the problem. They both need to take a deep breath. They both need their anxiety to go down. And basically, the husbands need to learn to think about what the wife's saying as if it wasn't their job to solve the problem right then. So empathic curiosity really needs some room for imagination. And that's hard to do when you feel an emergency alert going off to solve a problem. Empathy has always been perceived as innate, but it can be learned. Yes. The thing we just talked about can definitely be learned. I mean, honestly, from the neuroscience research and everything what we know, and we're still very far from understanding all the reasons some people are more empathic than others. But honestly, I think it has some of both. There are people who seem much more at ease with empathizing with people across the board, and there are people who find it very awkward or difficult. But both of those groups and and everyone in the middle can change their range through cultures of empathy. And that's why there's, for example, a very famous course that is out of Canada where they have for kindergartners and first graders, they bring a baby, a newborn baby and a mom are willing to volunteer pre-COVID, and they go into the classroom. And they teach the the kindergartners and first graders about how vulnerable babies are and how babies need care. And that seems to help the whole classroom. And they've they've tested this over 20 years. So when these kids grow up, as a whole, the median empathy level goes up. So people might be born or raised in early childhood in their families to have different levels of empathy, but it can be cultivated and taught in school and in medical education and other settings. So let's say if your parents weren't empathetic and you don't know what empathy looks like, you could still learn to be fluent in empathy. I'm a psychiatrist, and as you know, and I have a lot of training in psychotherapy. And I'd say a lot of why people go into psychotherapy is because they felt lack 
of that in their childhood, but they know they want it. And the therapeutic relationship is a place where someone is focusing empathic curiosity on the person who's grown up without experiencing that enough. And one thing that's very, very wonderful is when you receive more of it, you also grow your capacity to give it. Let's say I grew I grew up with parents who were very controlling or fearful or anxious, so they're constantly focused more on what I'm doing than how I'm feeling. How do I then learn the practice of empathy for myself and in terms of interacting with other people? And by the way, it's so common, right, that people have that, especially at the highest levels of achievement. If you look at CEOs or people who achieve a lot in different fields in the entertainment industry across the board, a lot of them have that experience you just described hypothetically. One of the things that's really interesting to me, I'm, I've been, I'm finishing a 10-year project and a book called Remaking the Self in the Wake of Illness. And in that book, I've interviewed for 10 years people who in the prime of life have a health loss. They get a serious illness, a cancer, or they are in an accident. Something happens where they're kind of maybe a high achieving or just a very, very life full person, and they suddenly can't do things. They can never, they can't either achieve whether they were good at sports or if they were just a very devoted parent who was used to doing everything for their kids. They can't do and be valued in terms of what they can do anymore in the same way, or at least for a period of time. And their sense of self really can collapse under that pressure, just like with COVID and unemployment and people losing their jobs. Besides the financial hardship on their family, people's identities get shaken. So loss makes people, their shakes their identity or undermines it. And if you've had very controlling parents, the fractures can really be very threatening to your whole sense of self. And I've been spending 10 years examining what helps people sort of rebuild themselves, remake themselves in ways where there's more strength than there ever was in certain ways before. And it's not what the typical self-help books tell you, which is you're stronger than you think, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's actually quite the opposite, which is people can learn to grieve their losses and feel empathic towards themselves for the, especially if they've parented now and they've given their child empathy that they realize they never got from their parents, you can grieve that and think of yourself when you were little and you can actually go through a process of grieving what you didn't get. And that grieving for yourself can actually be a form of self-empathy and that can be extremely therapeutic. If you look at it that way, then you are empathizing with yourself, except a lot of people are probably thinking, poor me. And that's exactly, that's a great question because it's the opposite of poor me because self-pity is really about seeing yourself as kind of irrevocably damaged or um, cheated, whereas self-empathy, in case I haven't been clear because I I, I didn't put in my initial definition because I thought it would be too confusing, I just focused on imagining another person's world, but actually to me, and this is all my work for, for decades has shown, that the the engine of empathy is curiosity, being really curious about what you don't already know about another person, you know, when you're with another person, wanting to know parts of their story you don't already know. Well, so how does that apply for self-empathy? And why is it different than self-pity? Self-pity, you see yourself as having a certain kind of very, you can have a repetitive form of self-pity where you always feel like, oh, my dad did this, and it always comes up the same way, and you feel sorry for yourself in sort of the same way. 
self-empathy is much more curious. You're thinking about what were the aspects of that that were hard for me? What was that like for me? And what can I change in my life going forward? It's a much more imaginative opening form of being with yourself. That is so interesting. I never thought of curiosity as being the driver of empathy. And the thought that's coming to me now is that the practice should help us connect deeper with others and or with ourselves as well, right? Because we're diving into that conversation a little bit more deeply, would you say? Yes. And and it's actually a very, I think we have a very deep need ultimately to be to have someone be very interested in and curious about exactly what we're feeling or exactly why a certain situation is hard for us, which is empathic curiosity. A very particular interest in us at a, a moment in time is something that we really, really thrive when we get. And I think that that's something that makes us trust the other person more. That's another thing we've shown in medicine. And what they've shown is if your doctor really has an interest in listening to what you in particular need and want from treatment, if they have that empathic curiosity, trust goes way up and adherence to treatment goes way up. So it really deepens the efficacy and effectiveness of doctors, but it's the same in a marriage, parent with a teenage kid. I'm sure in journalism what you do. So how do we start that conversation, that empathetic conversation with someone, instead of a one response back, how do we deepen that empathy building with someone else, that curiosity? Is there a good way or a good practice of doing it? I mean, I can make it really um, concrete, a couple of rules of thumb. One really good thing, I mean, I know that we all want to say things like, I know how you feel when someone's talking and we feel Um, resonant emotion with them. It's not a terrible thing to say because it's an informal way we all communicate, but it's important to realize you don't know how they feel and you don't know why they feel the way they feel. So one of the things that helps people share more and deepen empathic practice is to go more towards expressing curiosity. So when someone starts saying, oh my gosh, my boss ruined my day, instead of saying, wow, I know how you feel, to just basically either be quiet and let them talk about it till they're ready for an interruption, not to interrupt them, and until they're ready to, you know, to hear what you have to say, but not to interrupt them. Just not interrupting deepens empathic conversation a ton. And then another thing is if somebody is more shy and they don't say much, is to convey that you want to hear more non-verbally. You could even do that on Zoom by how your body language is. Or if it's over the phone, you can say, you know, unless you show you're listening, you make sounds and you say, mm, can you can you tell me more? Just can you tell me more are like the best things to say to somebody. That's so interesting because I feel like we're taught to always affirm what someone else is saying so that we are good listeners, right? Yeah, it's a great question. So people do want to be validated, but it's more important to be a little less. Here's the thing that's so so interesting about what we've talked about today, Kelly, like you were talking about like a controlling parent who's focused on the outcome, sort of an outcome-based focus versus a kind of beginner's mind or learner's mind. So we know that if parents constantly praise their kids for doing well on a test or this and that, the kids lose their um, ability to be as creative and try things where they may make mistakes or things may not come out with a good result. So the same thing applies with empathic listening. If you're too validating in the sense of saying too much things that are like approving statements, 
that might keep someone from then sharing some of the dark side of what they want to talk to you about. It's actually important to be more genuinely attentive, open, and curious and convey that than it is to be praising someone a lot for their what they tell you. This is so interesting. I was Good. taught that you always affirm what you just heard and maybe even paraphrase what you just heard so that the person on the other side feels like you really heard them. What I do is I paraphrasing is good if you and, and even the less para and the more just repeating their exact words. Because if you get too close to a paraphrase and interpretation, it may actually push them off. So it is good to repeat and paraphrase. I think that what I do then and what you're essentially doing with me, we're doing it in this conversation, is you can kind of pick up a couple of words they've said that you really are curious about or where you sense there was more but they didn't quite get into it and just use those words. A patient who felt like his life was essentially over when he got a certain disease said to me, you know, my life is, because he felt he couldn't support his family anymore, he said, my life is useless, a waste. And I felt so sad for him at that moment. But I didn't want to say, oh, my God, that's terrible, because I knew he was a very proud man. And I knew that would cause shame and it wouldn't work. So I just repeated, it feels like your life is over. It's, it feels like it's useless, a waste. And then he really talked to me. So a trick I use there is I repeat the person's words. But sometimes I say things like, it feels like, or right now it seems like your life is over or a waste, because that can actually be a very subtle signal to the person that they're in a state of mind that's not necessarily permanent. I've learned this as a psychiatrist, work with a lot of suicidal patients. So when someone they can convince themselves and almost convince you that their life has just become awful and almost unlivable. So someone says, you know, I've, I've lost my marriage or, you know, my, my kid, something terrible, you know, is very far away. I mean, the death of a child is a different issue. That is pretty unbearable for people. But if it's something like, you know, I've gone through a divorce or I've lost my job and I can't see going on with this, I repeat their words, I can't see going on. But then I add this thing, which is, to say, right now, it seems to you, you can't see going on. And that's actually a way of getting them to realize that they're in a hopeless state of mind, and it can make people really think and become curious about their own state of mind. Reframe what they're going through at this particular moment. Well, no, I agree with you about repeating the words, and then just saying something that makes it in a subtle way conscious to them that they're in a state of mind, that it may not be the only way to see their view, but not to say to them, well, that's not the only way to see it, or try to, if you're too controlling and saying to them, oh, well, you see it that way, but you could see it a different way, then you're not staying with them in the feeling. But if you are subtly interested and curious about what they're feeling right now, but you're restating it to them, that is a very subtle, like you suggested, that's a very subtle way, that re very subtle reframing is a, is a way to get people to feel both understood and validated, but also that there's something to be curious about. That's really helpful because isn't it easier to empathize with someone who has a similar experience that you do or you've had versus somebody who's so different from you and whose background is so dissimilar from yours that it's hard for you to empathize with that particular person's experience? It's just hard for you to step into those shoes that you've never seen before. That is the word on the streets, but I don't think it's true. 
I mean, basically, there's a very famous book by uh, a psychologist about that. And then there's a lot. I'm often, almost always when I'm interviewed, I'm asked if empathy is tribal. I mean, that's a lot of what people think. We've had, you know, a lot of NPR shows, a lot of different things have been covering this idea that empathy is tribal. But if you really look at the research and what's known, I would say that sympathy is definitely tribal. There's definitely a, a tendency to just emotionally resonate with someone that somehow feels familiar and that you can feel you're in the same boat as them. But that's not the thing I call empathy. In all my work, empathy is this engaged curiosity of trying to use your, your emotional resonance to understand something about the other person's world that you don't already know. Actually, in my model, and it's worked in medical education, it's actually somebody who you know is in a different situation from you, who you're more going to move towards empathic curiosity towards, and you're more likely to make a mistake if someone's too similar. If you're a woman physician in your 50s and you have a woman and you've had breast cancer and you have a woman patient with breast cancer from a similar group or whatever you identify with, you're more likely to think you know what she's worried about. And you might not. You don't know her childhood. You don't know if she's more concerned about her appearance or if she's more concerned about dying or if she's more concerned about being able to do her job or be there for her family. I mean, you don't know, but she's still each person. Even if we have similarities in some superficial ways, each person is a world, a distinct world. So we don't really know what other people think and feel. It's actually more likely that we'll make mistakes of sympathy with people that feel too similar and we'll have genuine curiosity about people who we know have some differences from us, which actually is everybody. The issue, though, of tribalism, I really think that this is misunderstood as a failure of empathy. And I actually turn the whole issue on its head. I think the issue is that we live in a society that's terribly fragmented by disrespect and dehumanization, that we actually treat certain people, some groups treat other groups, or certain political figures try to rouse people to dehumanize whole groups of people. And that, that disrespect for others as full human beings then means, like, why would I pay attention to and be empathically curious about those people if they're not as fully human as, you know, my tribe. So I think the problem is really one of dehumanization that then makes empathy not as much what you'd spend energy on with those folks if they're so different. But that's a problem of really disrespect. And that is where I think tribalism. If we want to change that, it sounds like the way to do it is to feel through that curiosity of the person that's in front of you. But you won't do it if you don't respect them as a person to begin with. That's why we need to change structural determinants of injustice and really change everything. And we do that with kids in schools, with that program, with the baby, where the baby, often we have people learning about babies and moms from groups that might have, they might be from a different ethnic group, a different religious background, a different socioeconomic background. We have to teach children from the beginning of the fundamental humanity of other children and not to get caught up in the, the prejudices and biases of their parents. And, and we have to change the social structures that promote those biases. So we have to treat each other with the same fundamental regard. And that's not going to come just from empathic curiosity. I love empathic curiosity. I've spent my career studying it. But we really need forms of justice and inclusion that go beyond empathic curiosity, and that will allow empathic curiosity to thrive. Okay, but for the rest of us who want to build on the skill of empathy, what can we do on a daily practice that's going to deepen our ability to be more empathetic or to connect deeper with others or even to just have that connection 
at all. I love your emphasis on daily. You have to have a daily practice or you have to practice at empathy. That's really important, even if you're naturally empathic, to have really, it's like everything else. It's like being a good writer, a good thinker, or anything, good mom. It's what you do every day that matters. Every time you walk out of a visit and you have just spoken in, ask yourself if you've learned anything new or unexpected by listening to that person. So prepare yourself to be a learning, have a learner's mind and a surprise mind. That is the cultivation of curiosity. And I think that we, we can teach people to use more guided imagery, to try to imagine when you're listening to someone, what is the scene they're painting for you? What is, it's sort of like learning how to make story more real to you. So if a friend is telling you about something, what are you picturing about her life and how do you know it's that way? Learning those questions that we talked about that are not said as overly intrusive questions, but just things like, tell me more about it. And then also um, trying to seek out, since we do all use media to relax, we all have certain kinds of books, like somebody always reads the same kind of mysteries or whatever, certain kinds of, I'm guilty of having certain kinds of TV shows that I look for other ones like it because I've enjoyed them. But try to open your narrative range of stories and experiences that you are exposed to. Every time you're exposed to like a different person's world, basically, what's it like for a little girl growing up in a refugee camp in Syria right now? now anytime you expose yourself to a really different person's world in story, the odds that you'll be more curious and interested in people whose lives are different than yours in those ways go up. Great insights. Are there questions that are better to ask in this journey of being empathetic? I think you asked fabulous questions. I was really impressed with your questions. <laughs> Thank you. Are there certain questions that you should ask as part of the experience to help it unfold versus, you know, questions like you were saying, don't affirm? So are there particular questions that work better in terms of opening up this experience of empathy? The best question to me that I overuse in my lifetime is to say to someone once they've talked to you and you're not interrupting them and if, especially if you want to do a little reframing like you suggested, which can help, like sounds like life feels too burdensome right now, whatever you're reframing, then the best question I know is to say, tell me what I'm missing here. What am I missing? And then just let them tell you. And that's really good in a marriage-like relationship. It's really good in a parenting relationship. It's amazing how much marriages improve and parenting and parent-teenage experiences improve and work relationships improve especially if there's some hierarchy and you have more, quote, power than the other person, really saying to the person that you're having a discussion with, this is how I'm seeing it, but I really want to know what I'm missing, and letting them really tell you, and then responding to that, not just with nodding your head or whatever, but with action and changes in action and planning, where you take into account their point of view, is extremely powerful for building trust and getting people to then tell you more in the future and want to talk with you more in the future. I appreciate you sharing your expertise. Thank you for joining me on Spark today. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much.